Very sick today, the S I C K sick. Hope you're, hope you're gonna survive through this. That is why my voice is what it is, and thank you for bearing with me. So don't don't mind us when she's like blowing her nose and coughing into the mic. Um, that's just part of the product. It's part of the experience. It makes it more authentic. It is. It's very authentic. We have a jam-packed show. Like it, we probably have too much going on. Uh, it's been a, it's been a really terrible 2020 so far, and uh, it doesn't look like it's cooling down at any point. We're going to be covering the Wet'suwet'en uh, coastal gas link uh, debate that's raging in Canada right now. You know, what's the sick angle? What's the sick response? Uh, and kind of diving into that a little bit, or at least giving it, um, give it some a, a bit of a sick perspective. Um, we'll be hopping into uh, what's going on in Delhi right now. Delhi is burning. It was a, a trending hashtag around the world. It was international news about. Uh, Hindu nationalist BJP RSS um, goons going around uh, destroying Muslim property, killing Muslims, uh, really reminiscent, at least visually, with a lot of uh, images you would see of 1984. And we kind of want to talk about that as well, how that was the same or how is that different uh, from what happened to six uh, 35 years ago. Then we, we have a bunch of interviews uh, lined up for today. Uh, we're going to be talking to uh, Jaspreet Singh, who is uh, um, a member of the International Sikh Student Association uh, for International Students. I'm going to talk about the international student experience in Canada. Uh, there's a, there's a, a lot of uh, a slander against the international Sikh community, uh, Jaspreet Kaur, international student Sikh community. And uh, you've seen it firsthand uh, a bit as a professor. Yeah, absolutely. I teach at a college here in Ontario. And while the on the ground experience is that they have been nothing but a strength and an addition for colleges, both financially and in terms of those, the culture of the college. Um, a lot of the perception internalized by the Punjabi community and coming in externally from the non-Punjabi community is that, um, you know, the same hatred that every generation of immigrants gets. Why are they here? What are they doing? Yeah. So that's one interview. The second one is with the Malik Akor. Um, a Berkeley Law, really super impressive, put out an article in The Wire talking about Delhi burning and some of the narratives and talking about the, the victims and how we have to understand and appreciate what the victims are going through and not to blame the victims because that's what's happening in India right now. Uh, so we have and shout out to out. her as well. Her She is dropping a new book. It's out already. If you do get a chance, check out Faith, Gender and Activism, The Wheat Field Still Whisper by Malika Gore. Yes. Big shout out uh, to the book. Uh, and thank you, Jessica Flora, for doing the name drop. Uh, and last but not least, Gurpreet Singh, who is a journalist out in BC. Uh, there was a story that broke by Global News, how Gurpreet Singh was threatened by Hindu nationalists. Uh, his life was threatened by Hindu nationalists at a UBC event he spoke at, uh, talking about uh, the CAA, the NRC, and what's going on in Delhi right now. Uh, so, jetpack show. We'll see you right after the jump. For all our listeners in Canada right now, it's it's been clear. Like the number one issue in this country is the Wet'suwet'en uh, 
protest, uh, just before you might debate uh, on the term no, protest. I'm not using the word protest. But for the sake of, uh, you know, uh, for the sake of setting this up, the protest blockades happening everywhere uh, in solidarity with, with, uh, with uh, the Wet'suwet'en people, uh, blockades of rail lines, uh, the economy has come to a, uh, a stop, uh, you know, propane shortages are supposedly happening now. Layoffs are happening in big companies like CN Rail and Via Rail. Um, hot debate amongst politicians across this country. Uh, conservatives obviously are are uh, suggesting uh, strong arming uh, and destroying these blockades. The liberals are kind of waffling, either here or there. I don't really understand what the position is. And uh, the NDP obviously uh, standing in solidarity with the indigenous communities. Well, not all the NDP, because then the BC NDP has their own issues. So I, this is very complicated and very complex, and it's all over the place. And we can sit here and talk about the politics of this um, for a very long time. But what I really want to focus on um, is what what's the issue? Like, what is this about? Is it is it about the environment? Is it about um, Indigenous sovereignty? And what's the sick perspective on this? Like, what's the sick response been on this? What's the sick angle for? an issue that's really been driving the headlines in Canada for the last month. Uh, so, so just record, I know there's a lot to chew on. Um, you know much more than I do on this topic. Uh, I, I, one thing I really noticed about uh, a lot of the conversation dialogue happening around this, and after I say this, I'm going to stop. I'm just going to let you talk. But one thing that I really noticed, um, and, and I was mindful of like myself when I, I was asked these questions, uh, when, I, when I would do a hop onto like radio roundtables and stuff, was how little I actually know about Indigenous history, Indigenous institutions, Indigenous systems of governance. Um, you, I don't know any of this. Like, I, I know very little about reconciliation. I know very little about uh, unceded lands and, and crown territories. I know very little about uh, Indigenous governance structures. Uh, and none of this was ever taught like when we went to school here. And I feel like the, the baseline for the conversation has been pretty garbage because none of us actually know what we're talking about. I think that's that would be like the sick entry point in the, into this conversation would just be that because I can only speak as I use the term settler. Um, that's what I, the term I was asked to use um, by Indigenous people because um, we have settled on this land and this land was cleared for our settling through processes of genocide. Um, so in Canada that happened through like overt killing of people, smallpox blankets, residential schools, 60 scoop. Um, the like the genocide continues through uh, missing and murdered Indigenous women, um, through the funneling of children into uh, the child welfare system, through the systemic underfunding. This is a, a big lawsuit that um, Canada has had to admit that they systemically underfund uh, First uh, First Nations child welfare and uh, as well as education that's all shown up as well um, in Canada the umbrella term indigenous is used to talk about someone who has a connection to this land so as far back as you go there's no history of migration they are people of this land we have uh, First Nations Métis and Inuit folks in Canada and First Nations are uh, there are so many different First Nations and that's a term given to like the people that were here and we're talking about nations. So like people who have different languages, different child rearing practices, different uh, styles of dressing, some 
that are like mutually intelligible, can understand each other culturally and socially, and some that are like coast to coast, um, like connect politically on the basis of their connection to land, but very different culturally. And I think that's important to understand too, because you can't just then say, well, I know what's going on because my indigenous friend said this. Um, when you look specifically at what's happening in Wet'suwet'en, um, and the reason I won't call it a protest is because that ask has come from people on the ground there. Um, they have the coastal gas link pipeline, which is a energy natural gas pipeline that was proposed to go through um, a bunch of unceded territory in British Columbia is cutting through their territory. So in Canada, land has been taken from indigenous folks through uh, treaties. Um, so like I'm in Ontario, I'm a treaty person. Um, treaties are like legal contracts. And even those, when we do a deep dive, some of them were done, take, it was taken through coercion, it was taken through genocide, but they're still legally upheld. Um, then there's modern day land claims, which you can like, there's a modern process for taking land. Um, there's no longer a treaty process. And then there's treaty that uh, land that is unceded. So never signed over. And that's most of British Columbia, which if you're looking at who has the title to that land, it's not actually the government of Canada. Um, and there was a landmark case in Wet'suwet'en in 1997 that said that the title belonged to the hereditary chiefs. So when you think about it, it's Canada is a nation state. There are nations within the boundaries of this country and Canada is illegally occupying that territory. So we go into British Columbia, we use our Canadian passports and Canadian stamps for mail and Canadian money. And we're kind of just pretending that that's Canada, even though there's no legal basis for thinking of most of British Columbia as Canada, it's unceded territory or um, for folks who are of that territory, they'll sometimes ask that the term be used liberated territory. It's not territory that was ever taken, it's just being occupied by Canada. Um, and when, I mean, when the Supreme Court says like in that landmark case in 1997 that the hereditary chiefs have that title, it is really difficult to um, make an argument for otherwise. Okay, so the, <laughs> the short, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 keep going, keep going. I think you're, I think this is illuminating. Yes, so the, um, what happened in Wet'suwet'en, um, all of these, so Canada will say, for a long time didn't accept the United Nations Declaration to the Rights of Indigenous People. That says that Canada has to uh, have um, consent uh, from Indigenous people when doing anything, especially around resources on their land. And Canada was consulting, but not asking for consent. So that would say like, um, Discarn, if I'm going to move into your house, um, I'm going to have a a meeting with your family and I'm going to say, how do you feel about me moving into your house? And you would say, uh, no, you can't move into my house. And then I would leave and I would say to everyone, well, I consulted uh, with Discarn and his family and I'll be moving into his house. Um, so, you know, they were saying like, we'll consult, but we're not worried about consent. Then the UN um, declaration was adopted and now Canada is saying consent is not a veto. So there's been a whole complicated processes, legal back and forth, and there's multiple nations whose territory this pipeline cuts through. And the issue in Wet'suwet'en has been um, the under the Indian Act, Indian is a word that we do not use to describe Indigenous people, but it is the governing act 
that the paternalistic governing act that controls relationships between the federal government and indigenous people in Canada. So I have to use that word because the government still does. Um, the Indian Act has a system where you have, it's like an electoral system and there are band councils and <clears throat> uh, those band councils were consulted. There's five and or six, I think, in Wet'suwet'en were consulted. The elected chiefs said yes, and with the consult of the community and with the input of some of the hereditary chiefs. And the uh, if you want to understand it, like they are the ones that are operating the territory on a very minimal budget, and um, they would gain wealth and access to a middle-class lifestyle through their agreement with the coastal gasoline pipeline. Um, there was a breakdown in communication with the hereditary chiefs, and the hereditary chiefs are responsible for their people and for the land. And they are saying that this is not something that we consented to. Um, so blockades were put up. Um, it is not, as a settler, it's not for me to pass judgment on what's happening in that community. Um, and it's very complicated and I can understand both sides. But what happened in, and the question is like, is it about the environment? Is it about indigenous title? Is it about land? This then took on, they, there was a call put out for, um, you know, support and solidarity. And to me, this is like that pivotal moment in any, like pick your movie of choice where all of a sudden like the universe shows up or all of the planets show up or um, all of the animals show up to defend. All of a sudden Canada has shown up, uh, folks throughout Canada have shown up in very real ways to support the hereditary chiefs in Wet'suwet'en. And that's looked like, um, you know, blockades on railway lines. That's looked like occupation, indigenous youth in BC um, occupying government offices. Um, in Waterloo, we had uh, people occupying a sixth member of parliament, Berthi Sugar, who I think is also the minister of diversity, occupying her office. Um, and Canada has been basically shut down economically, which has been really fascinating to watch. One thing that really touched uh, uh, touched me when I was uh, talking to about this with the, someone from the community was the same way we complain about the governance structures that were imposed on sick institutions. Uh, we should be willing uh, to take that state of mind and being able to put ourselves in the shoes of the indigenous of indigenous peoples across this country. It, it, when when looking at what's happening in front of us you know what is the sick angle how how do how do we as sick empathize with what's going on right now i think empathy is and that's it for me um although i think empathy should never be a prerequisite for solidarity i think we should have a like a moral compass that kind of tells us what to do if you do need the angle of empathy, it's 100% there. If you need to understand what a nation looks like within a nation and having that nation to nation relationship, you can apply the lens of like the Banth being in India, right? We're in a colonial con construct in a nation boundary, but we are our own nation. We have a Galtakt, we make our own political decisions and we operate on our own political level. Um, and then, and we demand that consultation from the government. If we look at um, decision-making, the Anand Prasad resolution, which was um, what 
Baba Janelle Singh Pindravali eventually uh, took the lead on, and that's what led up. The demands in the Anandpur Sahib resolution were what led to um, the, all the tension around the genocide in 1984. They were asking for the specific asks of the Sikhs included things like less control of the central government, asking for our capital back, asking to make our own political decisions, asking very specifically for um, decisions around water to be reversed, for um, more access to our own land. So we have experienced genocide as a nation, within a nation, for demanding um, access to our own water and land. And that kind of idea that we're sovereign, we get we have the right to determine who we are politically and what we do. Um, that's so dear to us. We have, I mean, we have a history of stopping trains and we did it with our bodies. Um, we are very political people. And the question then becomes, what does that mean when that's what we come from? And we're now on land that is not ours and we are benefiting financially, um, in terms of where our homes are, in terms of how our communities flourish, we're benefiting from the genocide of other folks. And like, we've struggled so much to get the Indian government to use the word genocide to describe what happened to us. It, that validation meant so much. Um, it came through in a Delhi High Court decision a couple years ago. But uh, the Canadian government has finally started using the word genocide to describe what's going on here. A Canadian government report, the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's National Inquiry, which was a Canadian-funded inquiry, called it a genocide. Justin Trudeau, in response to that inquiry, initially didn't use the word genocide, and now he does. So we're talking about a genocide that, in the Canadian government's own words, is happening right now. This is not something that happened in the past. So who are we? Where do we come from? And then what's our obligation when we're on land where this violence is happening? So if my final question on this would be then, what, what has the sick response been? What has it been with um, you know, leaders from the community? And, and what, what's the conversation, Chad, have you been hearing on the ground in circles think, um, uh, the, with folks? For the large part, it's been silence. Um, I have not seen six be a part of the conversation at all. And I'm curious if that's because of a lack of understanding of what's going on. It is a very difficult conversation. And um, for some sex, it's very polarizing. Like if you have relationships with um, the people who are Indigenous and do want these pipelines, there's so much empathy there. I can understand why someone would want the access to the same middle-class lifestyle that I have. Um, and if you are in solidarity with the hereditary chiefs, there's also a lot of empathy there. I can completely understand connections to land and governance and fighting for those rights. Um, so yeah, so there's been a lot of silence. I'm curious as to why. Is it because people don't know? Is it because people are torn? Um, some of the visible responses have been openly against the hereditary chiefs and the protests. We've had Member of Parliament uh, Tim Opel speak against them and for in favor of small businesses. Um, we've seen pictures of a Sikh police officer arresting Indigenous folks in BC, um, and the same Minister of uh, Diversity Bradish Jagger um, that when uh, people occupied her office in solidarity with what Sodan, she left, and then those folks were arrested, uh, and her office is on. 
the Halliman Tract, which was promised to the Six Nations, but not actually given to them. So she's also on land that is supposed to belong to Indigenous people. And so when the essentially these folks are on their own land, where her office is, they were arrested. Um, so silence, openly against, and then I've seen very few, I could count them on one hand, um, six that, and they're grassroots activists who have actually shown up and participated in this incredibly difficult conversation. And I think that's where if you're asking sick Canadians to do something, like if there's a real ask, it's that you listen, just stop and listen and, and try and weed out all of the other noise and try and have, if we are in a world where we have social media, we have direct access to the voices of the people that we're talking about. We have direct access to the voices of the band councils. We have direct access to the voice of the hereditary chiefs. Listen, understand. And then once you do understand, you can move to action. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And that's a point um, I personally kind of been walking away from all of this is that I understand uh, on the other side of this debate, um, conversations around, well, you know, uh, con uh, consent from the communities was achieved, consultation was, did occur, uh, well, the economic arguments around this, the, well, look, there's courts injunctions, you know, the blockades are supposed to be removed, where's the rule of law? Um, I understand those arguments, but at the same time, I understand the roots of, of the dispute happening right now and, and why, um, uh, I guess the defense of these unceded territories is and solidarity that's been popping up around the country around it. Um, I think when you when you look at, when you look at it from a sick lens, um, like uh, I think you really only for me you really only end up with one conclusion, which is empathy and solidarity. Especially if you you come at it with like what's our own connection to land and what's our own history and our uh, our understanding of being occupied and being controlled by the government and genocide. Um, and like, just, and that's why I think like, it's not for me to say like, do this or do that. The ask is for you to listen and to understand it from a sick perspective. Cause I'm really confident that education will only lead to one conclusion, which is to look at the situation with empathy. I would agree with that 110%. I'll start with this, a New York times headline. The roots of the Delhi riots, a fiery speech and an ultimatum. A local Hindu politician told the police to evict a group of Muslim protesters, or he and his men would. Now 25 have died in some of the worst violence in years. A couple of things have changed since this, uh, this headline and this New York Times article. It's clear and clear that these were not riots. Uh, this, is, uh, this is not a clash between two groups. This is a program at, at the very least, uh, and if there's any violence from the Muslim communities, largely in defense, uh, you know, I don't want to be killed by these people. Uh, and it's the the death toll has has grown to almost double that now, and it's probably growing every day. Uh, and the details around this are probably going to change quite a bit, even by the time this podcast is released. Just record the the carnage that's happening in Delhi right now uh, is was horrifying. Um, the fact that it happened while Donald Trump was there, to me at least sends a signal that the government, Hindu nationalists, the BJP, the RSS, they actually don't, they don't give a crap of who's watching and who's saying anything. They are so transfixed on uh, committing, uh, of 
creating this Hindu Rashtra, this Hindu nation at the expense of minorities, including Muslims, um, that anything that's in their way is just going to be pushed off. They actually don't frankly care. Like, have you been following this? Yeah, for sure. The playbook is quite similar between Modi and Trump um, in terms of ethno-nationalism and uh, there's this, the, I mean, I hope folks listening had a chance to watch some of the reception that, as, as Modi called him, Donald Trump. Uh, yes, the mega rally. <laughs> yes, uh, got while he was there. And um, it is really, yeah, it's bold. Um, Donald Trump did not comment on what was going on while it was there. And while I'm not surprised at what's happening, because it falls right into their agenda. It's been quite horrifying to watch, especially um, because like Dili's on fire and what was happening here in Canada with, with Soden, it felt like if like if we're talking about the sick Canadian identity, it felt like both parts of us were on fire. Right. It, it's like, cool, well, let's rewind here a bit. Um, you know, some folks, I saw some journalists uh, and some of you folks, especially in the Canadian scene who have done a uh, I would say, objectively speaking, quite a terrible job in understanding and reporting on India. Uh, like a surprise of sorts, like, oh my God, how can this happen in, in the capital, right? Like, India is supposed to be like a rising regional power and it's a pluralistic democracy. It's like, no, this is actually very, like a misconstrued understanding of what India actually is. Um, listen and to our bias. podcast because I feel like we've been talking about this every <laughs> month, trying to get people to understand how Hindu nationalism works. It is Nazi inspired. It is like, there are really great, yeah. um, the long read we talked about with, uh, about Modi, like there's a real, there are really great breakdowns um, of what's leading up to this moment and why this is not surprising. Right, and, and, it's, and it should be no surprise to anyone who actually watches India. Uh, and I think the American, American media has done a much better job of that. And, and part of the reason is why it's like, Washington Post has run out of you uh, who provides regular content to them, right? There's a really good journalist in places like New York Times and, and otherwise who are, um, you know, working quite uh, intensely with the, the India uh, topic. But if you rewind here a little bit, you know, again, this is a, a Modi government that, um, you know, tweeted out during the election, we must, you know, remove all infiltrators, which was alluding to uh, mostly Muslims. Um, this is a government uh, whose leader, Modi, is a uh, longtime RSS member. Uh, the RSS is the central ideological center of the Sangh and BJP is actually more of a political extension of the RSS than anything. That has literally been inspired by the Nazis uh, in their development and structuring. This is uh, a government that uh, you know, ignored the constitution and um, their treatment of Kashmir, uh, and who's still in a communications blockade, by the way, in the world's largest democracy. This is a government that pushed through things like the CAA and the NRC, and we've talked about this quite a bit up, up to date, like the you know, Citizenship and uh, Amendment Acts, sort of which exclude, again, Muslims, uh, contrary to the Indian constitution. Um, and during the Delhi election that just recently happened, uh, where the Ahmadi party uh, was reelected to a majority actually, um, the BJP was running on a totally communal uh, messaging where you had chants of uh, Goli Maro, 
uh, which was like shoot the protesters that are protesting CAA, the NRC, and Delhi who are holding sit-ins at multiple locations throughout the city. You had um, this conversation of like anyone who's protesting against the CAA, the NRC, or the Indian government are actually Pakistani sympathizers. Um, you had this really communal, communal garbage being spewed everywhere that was ignoring the fact that there was Hindus a sixth part of these protests as well. Um, there were six serving Lovegood at these protests. There was uh, interfaith stuff happening at these protests. But it was very specific in how the reaction was coming from the government. So it shouldn't surprise anyone when a BJP politician gets up and says, we will literally eradicate Muslims if they don't move, the pro if they don't shut down the protest, that within hours it would actually start. And the fact that police was complicit in this, there's videos of police. Uh, I don't know if you saw this just before, but taking video, down the video cameras. Yeah, how yeah. bizarre is that? There, like, if you guys uh, can find the video, what? like they're they're smashing like CCT cameras. Um, yeah, so that they can't. And then, <laughs> but we live in a world where you can have a camera on the person smashing the camera, and that's how we were. Yeah, yeah. this is like how bizarre is this? And uh, you have videos of the police literally holding back a bunch of pro uh, a bunch of uh, RSS members and BJP members and then say okay go now and then like they all go rushing and start destroying shops and killing people uh, you have videos of Delhi police from the Delhi police themselves who are making this video actually um, with a bunch of protesters bloodied on the ground telling them uh, sing um, sing the Indian national anthem and uh, to prove your loyalty it one of those guys actually died after so it's totally totally messed up and it's like one of the, yeah, the things we've been trying to figure out from the wso is like what like obviously there's we put out a statement that this is like it hits so close to home because of the pogroms that happened for us in delhi very similar circumstances but also trying to figure out what's the same and what's different and i think what one of the things that has stood out as what is different is the role of technology in all of this because right um we can see what's happening so much more now than when it was uh when six were the overt target in 1984 and also like in that same lens of technology, there were um, there were government census lists in 1984 that were handed out um, because it was organized. It was a pogrom, and to find six and to target them specifically, I saw folks um, this time around using data. And so, like, if you uh, had access to a rideshare app, you could look up the license plate of a car in front of you. If it was registered to a Muslim name, people were setting it on fire. Um, so the difference between like having to print out a census list versus being able to um, just pull up data on your phone. Being able to do a media blackout, you can't do a media blackout um, now because you everyone has cell phones and cameras. Um, it's been a lot of the same tactics, but a lot of really different ones because of globalization and technology and the way that information flows across borders, um, which makes it makes the global apathy that much more startling. Yeah, and I, I think it's important to highlight the similarities between what happened to six in 1984 and the, and the genocide and what's happening to Muslims right now in 2020, because there are tons of similarities. Like the visuals are strikingly very similar, um, but there's also a lot of differences. And it, there's been a lot of uh, good conversation happening around how 
we shouldn't allow what's going on right now in 2020 to become what happened to the six in 1984, right? Because there is a difference. And the violence against six was national. It was uh, very coordinated everywhere. It was longer. The death toll was uh, in magnitudes larger. But that doesn't mean what's happened to Muslims in 2020 is not a precursor to something like that happening. Um, and it's, I think it's very important for six to stand in solidarity in defense of uh, Muslim community in India, right? In defense of minorities uh, and the rights in, in light of what the Hindu nationalist government is. Like, I do not believe for a second that they wouldn't turn their attention to people like six after this is done. Or, or to Christians, oh, who, by the way, they're killing Christians already, but point them into a more systematic way to Christians or to other minorities, because it, it will happen. Um, a great example of uh, the Sikh community coming to defense was uh, there was a story in HuffPost India um, of, uh, of a gentleman named Mohinder Singh who saved 60 Muslims uh, during the riot. Uh, him, him and his son uh, put, uh, took uh, Muslims in trouble on their scooters and drove them to safety all throughout the day. Uh, and he's been interviewed now and, and he's become a bit of a hero. And the message he had was, I experienced 1984. Mm. Um, you know, there's people who protected me during 1984 uh, who, who were not doing the government's bidding. Like they were, they were trying to save me. Uh, I remember what happened to my people. And uh, it's my duty, not only as a Sikh, um, but as someone who experienced that and understands what that feels like to go out of my way to save them, even if it came at the cost of my own life. And I think one of our only saving graces has been that um, like BJP just thinks of us as Hindus gone astray. So their goal with us is assimilation instead of outward violence. That's a mm-hmm. pretty low thing to find comfort in. And I agree with you. I think that there's there's always the idea that we're next, but even that should not be what's required for us to be moved to action. Yeah, and it's... um. And this is kind of an ongoing theme where like the Sikh community has really come to the defense of minority communities in the face of like internationalist uh, oppression. If you recall um, when the Kashmir stuff was all happening, um, it was uh, Khalsa aid and Sikhs who were protecting Kashmiris uh, stranded in cities across India and facing violence. Uh, do, you, do you remember that? And the, the Kashmir locals uh, promised like free tour guides and like free food at our restaurant for any Sikh who comes in like in gratitude for how the Sikh community stepped up. Um, uh, another example, uh, there was a, a land dispute in uh, Uttar Pradesh, uh, Saharanpur, uh, between Muslims and Sikhs over a piece of land that the Gurdwara purchased to, I think, expand the Gurdwara. Um, and this was like a 10-year dispute between the two communities. Because of the Sikh response to Kashmir, because of the Sikh response to Delhi 2020, the Muslim community actually dropped their claim. Um, and, and dropped a dispute, uh, even though I think the matter was gone to the Supreme Court, even though there was, a, there was actually uh, some uh, settlement or dispute resolution happening with like city officials uh, because there were some claims that were going both ways of some old uh, claims to the land, they actually dropped it. And the original, um, the, original, uh, the original elements of the settlement was the six would purchase some other like land uh, for the Muslim community. They even said, you don't have to do that anymore. So it's like, it's one of these things where I, I, there's a a sense in India, at least right now, that, okay, the Sikhs will stand up in the face of tyranny. And I really want to highlight that in in the middle of all this, because uh, as a Sikh community, I think sometimes 
uh, we we're a little pessimistic about our community, uh, or we uh, we we tend to uh, believe that you know, everything's going down the drain. Uh, but I think that the element in our DNA around you know facing up against oppression in all its forms it, it still holds true today. Yeah, and I think just a personal reflection, like uh, you do, like I get empathy fatigue and. I keep looking at these images over and over again and they stop having meaning and then you scroll past them and you're like, oh, I already read this one once. Um, and in the face of all of that and feeling helpless, it definitely uh, helps to highlight those positive stories and to remember that there are sex that do have that built into their DNA. Yeah, and, and it's not everything, um, not everything is lost as far as we're concerned. Like we, we still have our ethos and we still have uh, domestic abuse that I think are still very much um, being followed by our community as much as we think that community has lost away. Uh, there's a lot of examples where we have it. Um, going back to what's happening in Dili though, one really crazy story that came out afterwards was um, there was a judge at um, uh, the Dili High Courts Muralidar, uh, I think if I'm pronouncing that right, um, who called them Dili police and said, um, while like the carnage was kind of simmering down, they they called them the Dili police and they said, you guys saw the video of Kapil uh, Mishra's hate speech that incited this violence and who's calling out for this violence. It's clear as day that this is the source. But you have done nothing. You did nothing to prevent this. You did not arrest him uh, on uh, charges of hate speech. Like, what is wrong with you guys? What happened afterwards is that judge was um, sent to another court system and actually removed from his position in the Delhi High Court. He was transferred to Punjab, actually. Um, and I think the message from the BJP government is, doesn't matter if the law's on your side, we'll still do what we want to do, right? It doesn't matter if uh, police institutions are actually just tools of ours. Um, if KGL is the chief minister of Delhi, it doesn't actually matter because as a union territory, the Indian government actually oversees security, uh, i.e. the police. Uh, it doesn't matter what the international community says because we're still going to do whatever we want and we'll unleash like false misinformation and propaganda everywhere to counter whatever's coming from the international community, which, by the way, has really turned on Modi in the last two weeks. It, um, it, it went from, oh, this guy's like an economic visionary and he's going to change India too. He's changing India just in the wrong direction, um, which is not to say that India has always been kind of in the wrong direction. Let's not forget it was a Congress who instigated the genocide against sick people who had no problems attacking minorities as well uh, for the sake of majority uh, electoral uh, strategy. But there's there's a sense now that I think didn't exist before, which was, like, does anyone actually understand what Modi is? Does actually anyone, anyone understand what the BJP and the RSS is? Because it doesn't seem like they do. That's changed, it, yeah. I think, Indian in the last 48 hours. Indian politics are very daunting to try and understand. Um, and I think that the kind of international silence, around, and I, I would say the same thing for China as well. There's there's such big, complicated situations. The silence allows for these really toxic circumstances to kind of arise. And we're 
we're talking about countries where their um, elections should be covered more broadly, the politics should be covered more broadly, and kind like the silence that lets these situations happen actually benefits those countries immensely. Yeah, and I think in the case of Canada, for example, where you have uh, so many folks of, of Indian origin, I think it's around 1.5 to almost 2 million people, I think, at this point in time, um, of which uh, six make up, I think, a majority population. Um, I think there's an onus on Canadian media to kind of understand uh, the countries like India a little better, right? Especially when uh, they're more than happy to pick up stories from India when it's maligning the Sikh community, but they're silent <laughs> on, are relatively silent on this issue. Like you'd think they'll be interested in a follow-up. You'd think they'll be interested in kind of digging in deeper or making the connection of, hey, hold on for a second. This is the same government that was maligning the Sikh community, which is a minority in India. And now they're killing Muslims, which are another minority in India. Plus the RSS ideology is this, like maybe we can connect the dots here and realize that we were plagued. Um, and, but I don't know how much of that conversation is happening. And, and it, like, stuff... when, you, when you frame it like that, it's hilarious to think that this Indian government that keeps trying to get the Canadian government to put a spotlight on violence, Sikh violence in Canada, uh, which is, the numbers are currently at zero. Last time I checked, I'll check again after this Yeah, podcast. in the last like two, three decades. <laughs> yep, yep. So that number stands at zero. Um, themselves is so violent. Um, and the, what, it, and what, what, what they get from benefiting from turning that gaze away from themselves and saying to Canada, but have you looked at the six in your country? Yeah, and, and the Canadian media ate that. That's up. Um, and I think it's the onus is on the Canadian media to kind of turn around uh, and, and look at what the situation that's at hand right now in India. And if they want a sick angle, there's multiple, multiple sick angles what's going on in India right now. Uh, the Akalta has literally like, denounced the RSS uh, and in the face of the Delhi uh, programs that are happening right now against the community, literally said, like, every Gurdwara has to open their door to folks that are uh, facing violence to protect them, right? Uh, if you want a sick story, because the Canadian media loves sick stories, talk about Khalsa Aid going around and being the first people on the ground delivering aid packages to, uh, to these neighborhoods that were burned to the ground uh, by Hindu nationalist mobs. If you want sick stories, there's sick stories there as well. If that's the only angle you care about in any of this, Okay, well, like here's here's two, three that we just can give you right away. It's still aligned with what's happening in India. Yeah, um, call call us. That's call a, kind of like one of the frustrations. Call us, breathe. We'll give you. A, oh yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're calling they're calling us right away. Yeah, for sure. Um, but <laughs> it's it's to kind our of podcast. You know that. Oh yeah, hundred percent they do. Um, the oh actually you know, some of them do. Uh, but the the issue is, uh, I think, what's bothered me this whole time more than anything else. And, and you can tell I get pretty riled up about this topic, uh, but what, one thing that's kind of bothered me about this is, you know, it, it's a year to almost to date that Stephen Harper put out this tweet. I don't know, I think you remember, do you remember this tweet? That Stephen Harper put out something saying, uh, there was a picture of him and Modi and they're like hanging out. And he's like, Modi's the, the greatest like visionary leader India has ever had. He's gonna dictate world policy. He's my very close friend. This guy's an amazing person. Uh, he's like the leader India always deserved. That was only 12 months ago. And even 12 months ago, those people criticized Harper. Like, are you kidding us? Like, how, do you not know what this guy is? Like, he literally was not allowed to enter America. His visa was banned because of similar programs that he did for good job. Um, like, are you not, are, are you blind to what the RSS is? Are you not 
like, are you not noticing the Hindu nationalist rhetoric and the violence and insecurity that minorities are facing in that country because of Modi? And then on top of that, Modi's economic record as Prime Minister of India is dismal. It's like, it's literally the worst numbers in the last decade out of India. It's completely mismanagement of the economics. So on what grounds are you guys aligned? Like on what grounds uh, does the Conservative Party uh, say, and, and they have said this in the past, that we share the same values as Modi's uh, uh, right party as well as BJP? Like BJP is not a right-wing party. It's a nationalist, Hindu nationalist party that doesn't care about right or left. It only cares about uh, implementing its mission of a Hindu Ashtar or Hindu nation. So if you're aligning yourself to the guys, I'm sorry, you can't go around now and say, well, we didn't know then that this is what he was gonna turn out to be. The fact is the evidence was clear uh, just as much as it is then, uh, now as it was then. Uh, so and, it, and it's worthwhile it to, to criticize like, them. Is this a willful ignorance? Like, are you? do you know and you're turning a blind eye or is it just like, oh, we're, we were so all about the economy, we didn't notice the genocidal tendencies of the group? Because I don't buy that. Yeah, neither do I. And, then, and you know, we, we're going to have two uh, separate interviews uh, on the same show uh, with Malika Kaur to talk a bit about the narratives and Gurpreet saying what he experienced. Uh, but I'll, I'll, I want to kind of end with this, uh, this theme around this topic. Uh, the Canada connection is important because the RSS does operate in Canada through the HSS, which is like their international subsidiary. They, they are active. Uh, they actually used to do Rakhi events with the uh, Peel Regional Police. Uh, but after we highlighted to the Peel Regional Police that you guys understand what the HSS is, like you're doing events with them, they canceled it and they, they no longer do events with them. Um, but the HSS is active in Canada. Like the RSS is active here, uh, which is again, inspired by the Nazis. Like this is the clear evidence. Um, and uh, the uh, Gurpreet Singh story that broke in the global, uh, on the global and Gurpreet tweeted about it as well, where they did a talk at UBC about um, you know this what's happening in Delhi right now and kind of diving in a little deeper of like you know what's you know what's the the build up to uh, this moment in Delhi and where this it probably doesn't stop her it probably doesn't keep going. Um, he was um, uh, literally threatened and verbally attacked by a bunch of Hindu nationalists that showed up to the event and, uh, and uh, threatened him like literally threatened his life that, you know, you better watch out. This is very important for Canada to understand because if we're talking about like extremism and radicalism and, and terror uh, in Canada, it's, it's not the Sikh community. It's literally the Hindu nationalists who are burning uh, entire communities down and killing people back in India who are supported by uh, folks here who raise money, who mobilize, uh, and who propagate the values of the RSS. So, yeah, I don't know. Uh, that's a bit of a rant. This is probably the most ranty I've ever got on this thing. You have every right to be this passionate <laughs> about it. And folks that are listening will definitely get more from our interviews as well. Yeah. So, uh, we'll, yeah, we'll leave it. There's tons to read. I, I highly recommend everyone, just if you haven't already, like, just devote a little bit of time. Just Google it. You'll find really great articles on this and kind of deep dive on what's going on in the New Yorker and Washington Post. I think even Vice has been putting stuff out. Um, the New Yorker, sorry, uh, if you haven't already, the New Yorker with Rana Yu was a great piece. That's Vice, that I find, seems... is always really accessible. They do good 101s. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, follow Rana Ayub on Twitter. She's been covering this like crazy. Uh, she's yeah. been covering this for years now. Uh, so there's a lot of great uh, journalists in India right now that are exposing what's happening uh, in uh, Delhi and really following the Hindu nationalist government. Uh, one other thing, though, I, 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 that kind of bothered me. Well, I'll end on this, actually. Sorry, here's me being ranty. Uh, ranting. Sorry, just record. Sorry to the listeners. Um, the, there's like this Indian liberal class who... Um, tried to whitewash what happened to six in 1984 when trying to uh, rightfully uh, uh, go after the BJP in 2020. Mm-hmm. And that bothers me uh, because it, there's a general feeling that no one has ever really cared what happened to the six. Like the liberal um, class of India has never really cared. The right class of India has never really cared. The Hindu nationalists have never really cared. Uh, and it's if it's ever evoked, it's evoked in purely political terms, and that bothers me too. And and a lot of the coverage, or a lot of the chatter that's coming out of uh, you know some of these liberal thought leaders in India, uh, where they're almost dismissive of what happened to the six, um, or they downplay it because they don't want to malign the Congress, uh, who they see as a bulwark against the BJP. The reality is, it doesn't matter if it's the Congress, it doesn't matter if it's the BJP. There's a rich history of maligning minorities and quite literally committing genocide against them. Uh, and that's something I think we all need to be mindful of when we're kind of digesting coverage on what's happening, that not every liberal uh, journalist or politician who's maligning the BJP feels the same way about the Sikh community. Uh, and it's up to the Sikh community to hold, hold them to the same standard we hold the BJP rightfully to. We are joined by Malika Kaur, uh, who's a lawyer, a writer who focuses on international human rights, uh, teaches at Berkeley School of Law, uh, and has been a regularly invited speaker and trainer on gender justice, trauma-informed lawyering, culture, humility, South Asia, and again, international human rights. Uh, Malika actually has a book coming out soon, Faith, Gender, and Activism in the Punjab Conflict, uh, The Wheat Fields Still Whisper. And... Malika wrote an article in The Wire, Don't Blame Victims Burning in Delhi's Violence Again. Malika, it's uh, such a great pleasure to have you here today. Uh, how are you doing? How's everything? Hi, Satsriyakal. I'm doing well. Thank you. So Jaspreet Gore and I were just talking about what's happening in Delhi. The, uh, the violence on the streets, the death, the destruction, the targeting of the Muslim community. As you're watching this, I'm curious to uh, hear and, uh, and understand what you may see as some of the problematic narratives that have been arising out of the events in Delhi right now. The narratives around the events in Delhi currently are particularly problematic, starting right with the characterization of the violence. The violence is still being talked about as riots. Um, in popular big media, radio, television, online, there are references to Hindu-Muslim clashes. On the other hand, the actual facts on the ground, the photographs, the videos that are being released, even the court order that was made in the middle of the night on Wednesday night at 1, after 1 a.m. India time, um, all these, and this was a court order just to allow hospitals, medical personnel to get to the injured um, folks, all of whom in that case were in a Muslim uh, neighborhood. 
all of these facts from the ground negate the idea that this is some sort of spontaneous riot. Also negate the idea that in some way the state machinery is not involved in what is happening. And not only not involved, um, the state machinery is in fact, given the evidence that is coming out, thanks to Twitter, Facebook, etc., the state machinery it has been encouraging and inciting this violence. I think you bring up a really great point around the mischaracterization that's being applied to what's happening in Delhi, i.e. it's a riot, it's it's a clash, and this kind of whole all sides, both sides type narratives that are also being uh, played here by the propaganda machine from India or just folks that are just ignorant to what's actually happening on the ground. It's hard not then to make uh, comparisons uh, or find similarities with what happened to the Sikh community in 1984 in the the images and and, uh, the videos of what's happening right now, comparing that with the images and the visuals of what happened in 1984, and and also to compare what the Muslim community is facing right now with what the Sikhs faced in 1984 in Delhi. So I, I guess my, I want to start off with similarities. You know, how is this similar to 1984? For six in Delhi, six in India, six around the world, this violence is deeply re-triggering, re-traumatizing. It immediately takes us back to November 1984 when anti-Sikh pogroms took place across not just New Delhi, but all of India. It reminds us of that time when six were questioned for their own victimization and blamed for their own victimization. And it was all at the end of the day and thousands of pyres burning and thousands of ritualistic, sadistic, sexualized killings at the end of the day was all still called a riot um, as if some sort of spontaneous, spontaneous eruption of anger had happened. So this is similar in the way it's being um, characterize that characterization is similar to 1984. Um, and of course, the actual streets and the locations also hark back for people, um, immediate survivors of 1984. They do hark back to 1984. While a lot of similarities were being discussed and found between 1984, Delhi, and 2020, Delhi, there was still a fair amount of. Uh, debate on how 1984 and the Sikh genocide is different from what's happening in in 2020, that there are differences here that need to be highlighted and discussed as well. Uh, And it's it's a false equivalency between 2020 and 1984, uh, because those are two very different events that had very different scales. Uh, What what are your thoughts on that? And what are some of the differences in, in your opinion? The violence is at the same time different from 1984. Um, for, For starters, we are hearing about details of the violence and the facts of the violence and true accounts of the violence thanks to uh, modern technology and Instagrams and Twitters and Facebook, all of which um, were, of course, not available in 1984 as um, Sikhs in India were cut off from the rest of the world. So that is a, is a huge difference and a huge protective factor. An elder uh, from the community contacted me recently and was commenting on um, that 
um, Gangi Raja and the Puri and Katleam Nabanda. That if in 1984 we had this kind of technology, perhaps the um, violence would have actually remained just riots and not become um, mass bloodshed, mass pogroms. So this technology is is a protective factor. The other difference, of course, is the scale of the violence right now. Um, what we know right now is that perhaps three dozen people have been killed. There are a lot of unknowns. Um, so there's the scale of the violence so far is fortunately um, much contained and, and is incomparable to 1984. Also, Muslims in India have been fearing such outbreak of violence for a long time and have also experienced it repeatedly in the recent past. So there is a little bit more, actually quite a bit more preparation and organization on the path, on the part of Muslims in India in how they're responding to the violence. Um, there are also currently Hindu casualties that are happening uh, during the, this violence, and that is because there have been reactions from those uh, from Muslims who are being attacked and are um, fighting for their lives um, as well. So that is an, another difference from 1984, where really Sikhs were um, caught unawares, were sitting ducks, and there wasn't any immediate ability um, to to react um, and for violence to meet violence or for any sort of Hindu casualties in November 1984. So that that is at the same time another difference. Um, of course, we should not be hoping, and uh, nobody is hoping for increased casualties of, of any side, but the fact remains that the state, the police, um, a lot of the media is painting things in a way that are making it more and more likely for there to be more Muslim, uh, even more Muslim casualties than what one has seen already. I want to end with this question. There seems to be, at least right now, a visceral reaction from the international community uh, and within some segments of India's media establishment um, against Narendra Modi's BJP, against Hindu nationalism. There's been a bit of a awakening of at least of the realities of what's happening in India under uh, the BJP and the RSS and, and all of that. What do you think the fallout will be of Delhi 2020 for India domestically and internationally? Or will there be any fallout? The fallout from this, um, of course, the first fallout at a humanitarian level is the crisis that has been created, the actual deaths that happen. It's never just one person who dies. It's an entire family and their their dreams, their desires, their um, sense of belonging dies. So generations are affected with any such kind of killing. And these three dozen plus killings are already way too many. The fallout um, for the Indian politicians is not um, immediately apparent. There is some bad press, one would think, especially when this violence began while uh, another head of state, the current U.S. President Trump, was in Delhi. But the the press took a while, international press took a while to catch up uh, and actually report on what was happening. And the Indian government doesn't really seem to care as much as about bad press. And this is a trend that's in keeping with the last 
10 years and or more even. Um, it's, so that's also uh, different from the 80s and 90s. Um, so it's not very clear what the political fallout for the government's going to be. If anything, this fits with the kind of rhetoric on which um, the current government at the center ran its elections for the recent, uh, ran its campaigns for the recent Delhi elections, which it then lost. So there are several political commentators, in fact, saying that this violence suits um, the central government just fine, is in line with their, um, their, ability and interest to show themselves as the strong Hindu right party and um, is in fact setting the stage for their future victories, one on bloodshed and one on um, pogroms. So the the fact that there would be not inter, uh, some sort of political downside to what is happening uh, while from a humanitarian um, human rights perspective and from a basic human perspective, we would hope that there would be a political downside. Unfortunately, there might be electoral benefit, um, like in 1984, there might be electoral benefit uh, given what has happened. The only silver lining in all of this is what ordinary citizens and ordinary people and ordinary Indians are doing for each other to protect each other, to save each other. With that, Thank you so much, Malahakor, for uh, coming on to the show today and uh, taking part in this conversation and providing your insights on what's going on in Delhi right now. We're happy to have Gurpreet Singh on the show today, a Vancouver-based journalist, as well as a spokesperson for the group Indians Abroad for Pluralist India. Gurpreet's also the man that was threatened by Hindu nationalists at a UBC event that he was speaking at, which was covered by Global News. Gurpreet, how are you doing? And thank you for coming on the show. Hi, Jaskaran. I'm doing fine. Thanks for asking. First things first, Gurpreet, what was the event you were speaking at? And what were you talking about? I was invited at an event organized by the University of British Columbia on the night of uh, February 25th. It was a teaching event, which was organized by the academics to educate people about what is happening in India. So they had invited three panelists, and I was one of them. We were all supposed to uh, give our thoughts on the controversial Citizenship Amendment Act brought by the Modi government, uh, which is very problematic, divisive, and discriminatory. And uh, we have seen how this uh, has led to violent protests, and more than 30 people have died in New Delhi alone. So um, I was also invited to give my thoughts on this particular act, and I said that uh, this is basically a repetition of the History of Kamagata Maru, as uh, this law clearly says that only non-Muslim refugees are acceptable from the neighboring Muslim countries like Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Bangladesh. So this law is problematic uh, because uh, Indian constitution guarantees religious freedom and equality. So that's why people are upset. I also question the morality of the Indian state for making such kind of law. I mean, when you have a baggage of 1984-2002, how can you uh, bring in minorities from other countries? I mean, if your record was clean, we can understand. But when your own uh, hands are smeared with blood, it makes no sense that you are opening doors for the minorities. And on top of that, you are discriminating against one minority group, so which is totally unacceptable. And how about... Uh, uh, minority Muslim Uyghurs being persecuted in China. China is also a neighboring country. How about Tamil Hindus being persecuted in Sri Lanka? 
how about rohingyas in myanmar so this whole act is problematic so that opinion then bothers some folks in the audience at ubc you know what happens after you're done speaking after the event concludes so around 15 uh, modi supporters were there in the room and among them were some women so they were heckling uh, the panelists and uh, uh, they were trying to create a lot of noise and they were repeatedly told to stay quiet and be respectful and wait till the end uh, and they can speak only during q and a and not before that anyhow at the end uh, some of them actually came forward and uh, they were very abusive they were rude to one of my uh, senior friends uh, purushottam dosanch they were very abusive and one of them identified himself as surender sharma he told me that in 2002 i had gone to a sari hindu temple to interview a controversial uh, hindu politician visiting from india so i asked her some inconvenient questions so he was quite upset about that and he said at that time uh you got away and uh, this time you won't be able to so which clearly um is a threat and i brought this to the knowledge of uh, the ubc and and murphy who is a professor there she actually notified the ubc rcmp and rcmp is now looking into this whole case and i uh, actually spoke to their uh, investigators so let's see what happens wow yeah that's that's incredibly problematic and worrying I think highlights that Canada is not immune from the Hindu nationalist movement and the violence associated with it. What what do you believe is the state of Hindutva in Canada, Hindu nationalism in Canada, and what would your suggestions be on how do we stop it, and what advice would you give to decision makers like politicians or policymakers in the media when examining this? Hindutva extremism is definitely a growing challenge in Canada and uh, people should be vigilant. I mean they operate at different levels. Uh, one is that they have their own uh, uh, temples. They their groups are active. Uh, some of them are quite open like RSS and also there's a group called uh, Overseas Friends of BJP which is the ruling party of India. It's a Hindu nationalist party we all know that. And on top of that they have good connections with the Indian consulate. So they try to Uh, uh create a lot of fear and they try to use their influence to get people stopped from visiting india they can try to get you blacklisted those kind of challenges can never be ruled out so right now the canadian politicians need to speak out uh, they cannot uh, take things for granted this deafening silence on part of canadian politicians is not helping so they should be very vocal they should make statements against what is happening in india Uh, they should uh, immediately bring this matter to the knowledge of the RCMP and CSS whenever some kind of uh, instance of foreign interference is reported. Unfortunately, uh, we aren't seeing our Canadian politicians making much noise on this. So that's my concern. And media should also be uh, vigilant about it. Media is selective; they always uh, take notice of what is going on within the Sikh community. But with the uh, with this kind of challenge, they are. Uh, totally un, uh, indifferent which is which is very unfortunate and in media should not be selective at all uh, we should not forget what happened in uh, 1985 air india bombing was uh, the culmination of uh, the state sponsored violence in 1984 against minorities 
So again, uh, this history is repeating itself and uh, the media and the politicians in Canada need to be vigilant. With that, thank you so much, Gurpreet Singh, for joining us. Wish you had more time to talk. Uh, please do keep us updated on what's, uh, what's happening with the police investigation uh, and, and the threats you received. Uh, and please do continue to highlight the issues with the Hindu nationalism and the violence uh, it's propagating, not only within India, but outside as well. Thank you again for joining us. In this next segment, we have with us Jaspreet Singh. Jaspreet Singh is a Sevadar with the International Sikh Students Association. He graduated from Sheridan College in Electromechanic Engineering, and he currently does advocacy for international students. Jaspreet Singh Sardinaria, Oho International Sikh Students Association, the Sevadaria, Sheridan College, the graduate, international student. International students di seva kadeya. Um Jasper Singh, welcome to our podcast. And Pella Sawalia vi to see Tanuiti Ayanu Kinachir Hogya to see his seva kyo kade. Uh Vaigurjiga Kalsa, Vaigurji Fateji. Manu Lagbag Charsal Hoge Canada which I know the Shadan College to Mang. Seva Karanda Sada Mokmaisata he sigaki Jadwapa Sigimana student the काफी प्रॉब्लम्स आ काफी चीजें आ जाती हैं तो बच्चों एक स्टूडेंट नो आहा वेंटर होना पहनता तो इस कार्य पे जब हम ऐसी ग्रेजुएट होए जब हम आप थोड़ी जैसे सॉफ्टवेयर होए तो सानू लगा के शायद सारे नो उन्हें सोर्सेस नहीं मिल दे जा सारे नो मतलब उन्हें अवेयरनेस नहीं होती इस कार्य See, um, both sides like international students go to international Okay, right now at this time, there is no problem. There is no calls or messages. There are no jobs. There are no resources. There are no resources. There are There are There are ਤੇ ਉਸ ਤੋਂ ਇਲਾਵਾ ਜਿਹੜੀ ਦੂਜੇ ਨੰਬਰ ਤੇ ਸਾਨੂੰ ਕੰਟੈਕਟ ਕਰਦੇ ਆ ਤੇ ਆ ਸਟੂਡੈਂਟ ਵੀਰ ਭੈਣ ਉਹ ਹੈਗਾ ਆ ਅਕੋਮੋਡੇਸ਼ਨ ਕਿ ਰਹਿਣ ਦੇ ਲਈ ਜਗ੍ਹਾ ਬਹੁਤ ਮੁਸ਼ਕਲ ਨਾਲ ਮਿਲਦੀ ਆ ਤੇ ਜੇ ਮਿਲਦੀ ਆ ਤਾਂ ਰੈਂਟ ਬਹੁਤ ਜ਼ਿਆਦਾ ਆ ਤੇ ਇਹ ਮਤਲਬ ਦੋ ਚੀਜ਼ਾਂ ਨੇ ਜਿਹੜੀਆਂ ਸਾਰੇ ਜਣੇ ਫੀਲ ਕਰ ਰਹੇ ਆ ਹਾਂ ਤੇ ਇਹਨਾਂ ਦਾ ਕੋਈ ਸੋਲੂਸ਼ਨ ਵੀ ਕੋਈ ਠੋਸ ਆਪਾਂ ਕਹਿ ਦਈਏ ਉਹ ਆਪਾਂ ਨੂੰ ਦੱਸ ਨਹੀਂ ਰਿਹਾ ਨੀਅਰ ਫਿਊਚਰ ਦੇ ਵਿੱਚ ਹਾਂਜੀ ਸੀ ਇੱਕ ਵੀ ਇਹ ਵੀ ਗੱਲ ਦੱਸੀ ਸੀਗੀ ਵੀ ਜਿਹੜੇ ਇੰਟਰਨੈਸ਼ਨਲ ਸਟੂਡੈਂਟਸ ਆ ਜਿਹੜੇ ਸਾਰੇ ਸਟੂਡੈਂਟਸ ਆ ਉਹਨਾਂ ਨੂੰ ਕੀ ਮੈਂਟਲ ਹੈਲਥ ਪ੍ਰੋਬਲਮਸ ਆਉਂਦੀਆਂ ਆ ਪਰ ਅਸੀਂ ਇਹ ਵੀ ਦੇਖਿਆ ਸਾਡੇ ਕਮਿਊਨਿਟੀ ਵਿੱਚ ਵੀ ਕਾਫੀ ਸੂਸਾਈਡਸ ਆ ਰਹੀਆਂ ਆ ਇੰਟਰਨੈਸ਼ਨਲ ਸਟੂਡੈਂਟਸ ਆਰ ਡਾਈਂਗ ਫਰਮ ਸੂਸਾਈਡ ਇਟ ਸੀਮਸ ਲਾਈਕ ਮੋਰ ਦੈਨ ਡੋਮੈਸਟਿਕ ਸਟੂਡੈਂਟਸ ਆਰ ਤੁਹਾਡੇ ਇਸ ਚੀਜ਼ ਵਿੱਚ ਕੀ ਐਕਸਪੀਰੀਅੰਸ ਆ ਤਾਂ ਤੁਹਾਨੂੰ ਕੀ ਲੱਗਦਾ ਹੈ ਵੀ ਇਹਦਾ ਕੀ ਕਾਰਨ ਆ ਹਾਂਜੀ ਭੈਣ ਜੀ ਸਾਡੀ ਸਭ ਨੂੰ ਵੱਡੀ ਚਿੰਤਾ ਹੀ ਦਰਸਲ ਇਹੀ ਆ ਤੇ ਅਸੀਂ ਇੱਥੋਂ ਦੀਆਂ ਲੋਕਲ ਸਾਰੀਆਂ ਜਿਹੜੀਆਂ ਮੈਂਟਲ ਹੈਲਥ ਨੂੰ ਡੀਲ ਕਰਦੀਆਂ ਆਰਗੇਨਾਈਜੇਸ਼ਨ ਦੇ ਨਾਲ ਵੀ ਅਸੀਂ ਕੰਟੈਕਟ ਕਰ ਰਹੇ ਹਾਂ ਕਿਉਂਕਿ ਹੁਣ ਰੀਸੈਂਟ ਦੇ ਵਿੱਚ ਜਿੰਨੇ ਵੀ ਤੁਸੀਂ ਆਹ ਅਖਬਾਰ ਖੋਲ ਕੇ ਦੇਖ ਲਓ ਤੁਸੀਂ ਆਨਲਾਈਨ ਜਾ ਕੇ ਦੇਖ ਲਓ ਜਿੰਨਾ ਵੀ ਇੱਥੇ ਡੈਥ ਡੈਥ ਹੋ ਰਹੀਆਂ ਮੈਂ ਬਸਿਕਲੀ ਜੀਡੀਏ ਦੀ ਗੱਲ ਕਰਾਂ ਤਾਂ 4 ਤੋ
ਜਿਹੜੇ ਸੈਲਫ ਸਰਵ ਉਹਨੇ ਸੂਸਾਈਡ ਅਟੈਂਪਟ ਕੀਤੀ ਕਿਉਂਕਿ ਉਹਨਾਂ ਨੂੰ ਕਿਸੇ ਨਾ ਕਿਸੇ ਚੀਜ਼ ਦੀ ਪਰੇਸ਼ਾਨੀ ਸੀਗੀ ਚਾਹੇ ਉਹ ਇਮੀਗ੍ਰੇਸ਼ਨ ਦੀ ਸੀਗੀ ਚਾਹੇ ਉਹ ਉਹਨਾਂ ਦਾ ਆਪਣਾ ਜਦੋਂ ਸਟੂਡੈਂਟਸ ਇੱਥੇ ਆਉਂਦੇ ਆ ਮੈਂਟਲ ਹੈਲਥ ਪ੍ਰੋਬਲਮਸ ਸਾਰੇ ਨੂੰ ਆਉਂਦੀਆਂ ਆ ਤੁਹਾਨੂੰ ਕੀ ਲੱਗਦਾ ਆ ਵੀ ਇੰਟਰਨੈਸ਼ਨਲ ਸਟੂਡੈਂਟਸ ਆਪਣੇ ਆਪ ਨੂੰ ਇੱਥੇ ਇਕੱਲੇ ਸਮਝਦੇ ਆ ਜਾਂ ਜਿਹੜੀਆਂ ਰਿਸੋਰਸਸ ਹੈਗੀਆਂ ਆ ਉਹਨਾਂ ਨੂੰ ਵਰਤਦੇ ਆ ਜਾਂ ਨਹੀਂ ਵਰਤਦੇ ਹਾਂਜੀ ਨਹੀਂ ਇੰਟਰਨੈਸ਼ਨਲ ਸਟੂਡੈਂਟ ਅਸੀਂ ਇੱਕ ਗੱਲ ਤਾਂ ਤਾਂ ਜ਼ਰੂਰ ਹੈਗੀ ਆ ਨਾ ਹੁਣ ਇੰਨੇ ਹਜ਼ਾਰ ਕਿਲੋਮੀਟਰ ਦੂਰ ਆਪਣੇ ਘਰਦਿਆਂ ਤੋਂ ਇੱਥੋਂ ਦੂਰ ਰਹਿਣਾ ਇੰਡੀਆ ਕੋਈ ਨਿੱਕੀ ਮੋਟੀ ਗੱਲ ਹੁੰਦੀ ਸੀ ਤਾਂ ਘਰ ਦੇ ਖੜੇ ਹੁੰਦੇ ਸੀ ਇੱਥੇ ਵੀ ਚਲੋ ਨਾਲ ਯਾਰ ਦੋਸਤ ਖੜੇ ਹੁੰਦੇ ਆ ਜਾਂ ਰਿਸ਼ਤੇਦਾਰ ਹੁੰਦੇ ਆ ਕਈਆਂ ਦੇ ਪਰ ਉਹ ਉਮੀਦ ਹੀ ਉਹ ਗੱਲ ਨਹੀਂ ਬਣਦੀ ਤੇ ਦੂਜੀ ਗੱਲ ਜੇ ਆਪਾਂ ਗੱਲ ਕਰੀਏ ਰਿਸੋਰਸਸ ਦੀ ਕਿ ਜਿਹੜੀਆਂ ਹੈਲਪ ਜਾਂ ਕਾਉਂਸਲਿੰਗ ਸਰਵਿਸਸ ਹੁੰਦੀਆਂ ਉਹ ਕੋਈ ਵਰਤੇ ਤਾਂ ਤਾਂ ਕਿ ਜੇ ਕਿਸੇ ਨੂੰ ਪਤਾ ਹੋਵੇ ਹਨਾ ਉਹ ਕਿਸੇ ਨੂੰ ਉਹਨਾਂ ਬਾਰੇ ਕੁਝ ਨਹੀਂ ਪਤਾ ਹੁੰਦਾ ਇਥੋਂ ਤੱਕ ਕਿ ਸਾਰੇ ਕਾਲਜਸ ਵੀ ਮੈਂਟਲ ਹੈਲਥ ਦੇ ਵਿੱਚ ਉਹ ਕਾਉਂਸਲਿੰਗ ਪ੍ਰੋਵਾਈਡ ਕਰਦੇ ਆ ਤੁਹਾਨੂੰ ਤੁਹਾਨੂੰ ਕੈਰੀਅਰ ਕਾਉਂਸਲਿੰਗ ਕਰਦੇ ਆ ਮਤਲਬ ਹਰੇਕ ਚੀਜ਼ ਇਥੋਂ ਤੱਕ ਕਿ ਮਤਲਬ ਬ੍ਰੇਕਅਪ ਵਰਗੇ ਇਸ਼ੂਜ਼ ਵੀ ਆ ਉਹ ਵੀ ਕਾਲਜ ਦੇ ਵਿੱਚੋਂ ਤੁਹਾਨੂੰ ਹੈਲਪ ਕਰਦੇ ਕਿ ਤੁਸੀਂ ਇਹਦੇ ਵਿੱਚੋਂ ਕਿਉਂ ਨਿਕਲਣਾ ਕਿਉਂਕਿ ਉਹਨਾਂ ਨੂੰ ਪਤਾ ਕਿ ਇਹ ਚੀਜ਼ਾਂ ਬੰਦੇ ਤੇ ਇਫੈਕਟ ਕਰਦੀਆਂ ਪਰ ਮੈਨੂੰ ਲੱਗਦਾ ਜਿਹੜਾ ਆਪਣਾ ਮਾਈਂਡਸੈਟ ਆ ਹਨਾ ਸ਼ਾਇਦ ਪੰਜਾਬ ਦੇ ਵਿੱਚ ਕਿ ਉੱਥੇ ਸਾਨੂੰ ਕੋਈ ਵੀ ਇਦਾਂ ਦੀ ਪ੍ਰੋਬਲਮ ਆਉਂਦੀ ਸੀਗੀ ਆਪਾਂ ਜਦਾਂ ਮੈਂ ਭੈਣ ਜੀ ਉਹਨਾਂ ਨਾਲ ਗੱਲ ਕਰਦਾ ਸੀ ਆਪਾਂ ਕਹਿੰਦੇ ਸੀ ਚਲੋ ਘਰੇਲੂ ਮਸਲੇ ਆ ਕਿਸੇ ਨੂੰ ਦੱਸੀਦਾ ਵੀ ਨਹੀਂ ਸੀ ਜੇ ਕੋਈ ਪੁੱਛੇ ਵੀ ਤਾਂ ਕਿ ਨਨਾ ਕਿ ਸ਼ਬਦ ਵਰਤ ਲਈ ਤਾਂ ਨਹੀਂ ਘਰੇਲੂ ਮਸਲਾ ਕੁਝ ਨਹੀਂ ਹੋਇਆ ਕੈਰੀ ਔਨ ਪਰ ਹੁਣ ਆਪਾਂ ਇੱਥੇ ਦੇਖਦੇ ਆ ਤੇ ਹਰੇਕ ਚੀਜ਼ ਦੇ ਲਈ ਨਾਮ ਆ ਡਿਪਰੈਸ਼ਨ ਐਂਡ ਐਂਗਜ਼ਾਇਟੀ ਪੈਨਿਕ ਅਟੈਕਸ ਕਿੰਨੀਆਂ ਚੀਜ਼ਾਂ ਆ ਪਰ ਆਪਾਂ ਮਤਲਬ ਉਸ ਚੀਜ਼ ਨੂੰ ਇਗਨੋਰ ਕਰਦੇ ਆ ਤੇ ਮੈਨੂੰ ਲੱਗਦਾ ਉਹ ਅੰਦਰ ਅੰਦਰ ਉਹੀ ਚੀਜ਼ਾਂ ਵਧਦੀਆਂ ਰਹਿਣੀਆਂ ਤੇ ਸ਼ਾਇਦ ਉਹੀ ਕਿਤਨਾ ਕਿਤੇ ਸੂਸਾਈਡ ਤੱਕ ਵੀ ਉਹ ਚੀਜ਼ ਚੱਲ ਜਾਂਦੀ ਆ ਤੇ ਆਪਾਂ ਉਹਨਾਂ ਉਸ ਚੀਜ਼ ਨੂੰ ਯੂਜ਼ ਨਹੀਂ ਕਰ ਰਹੇ ਜਿਹੜੀਆਂ ਤੋਂ ਨੀਆਂ ਲੋਕਲ ਆਰਗੇਨਾਈਜੇਸ਼ਨਸ ਜਾਂ ਕਾਲਜਾਂ ਵੱਲੋਂ ਵੀ ਇਵਨ ਜਿਹੜੀ ਹੈਲਪ ਦਿੱਤੀ ਜਾਂਦੀ ਆ ਕਿਉਂਕਿ ਆਪਾਂ ਨੂੰ ਉਹ ਪਤਾ ਹੀ ਨਹੀਂ ਅਵੇਅਰਨੈਸ ਅਵੇਅਰਨੈਸ ਦੀ ਬਹੁਤ ਘਾਟ ਹੈ ਮੈਂਟਲ ਹੈਲਥ ਇਸ਼ੂਜ਼ ਵਿੱਚ ਬਹੁਤ ਸਟਿਗਮਾ ਹੁੰਦੀ ਆ ਵੀ ਲੋਕੀ ਕੀ ਕਹੋਗੇ ਤਾਂ ਸਾਨੂੰ ਇਸ ਚੀਜ਼ ਦੀ ਸਮਝ ਨਹੀਂ there's a lot of stigma to being an international student tanu bahut discrimination da samna karna penda hai kuch barli community to to kuch apni community to ta tanu tade experience vich tanu kiddan lagda hai vi jehdi saadi community hai ja barli community hai oh international students bare ki sochde hai te ki ede vich kuch koi sachai hai ah nahi bhai ji main apna personal experience dassa mainu ta kade vi kisi ne idan di koi gal nahi kahi ke jithon mainu lagga hove ke main bakiyan de nalon lag gaya ja assi student hunde ha te jithe je kithe koi vaise puch le ta matlab bada pyar ya nal puchda ke haan ji mere aap aaye kiddan aaye student aaye ya jada te oh sahab di udan di kade nahi koi vi aayi te ਪਰ ਜਿਹੜਾ ਆਪਾਂ ਨੂੰ ਆਹ ਲੱਗਦਾ ਨਾ ਕਿ ਮੈਨੂੰ ਲੱਗਦਾ ਜਿਹੜਾ ਇੰਡੀਆ ਇੱਕ ਮੈਸੇਜ ਜਾਂਦਾ ਕਿ ਉੱਥੇ ਸਟੂਡੈਂਟ ਦੇ ਨਾਲ ਭੇਦਭਾਵ ਕੀਤਾ ਜਾਂਦਾ ਉਹ ਸਿਰਫ ਤੇ ਸਿਰਫ ਉਹ ਇੱਕ ਜਿਹੜੀਆਂ ਮੀਡੀਆ ਦੇ ਵਿੱਚ ਹਨਾ ਜਿਹੜੀਆਂ ਗੱਲਾਂ ਹੁੰਦੀਆਂ ਜਦਾਂ ਕਈ ਐਦਾਂ ਦੇ ਲੋਕ ਉਹ ਕਾਲ ਕਰਦੇ ਆ ਫਿਰ ਬਾਅਦ ਚੋਂ ਰਿਕਾਰਡਿੰਗ YouTube ਤੇ Facebook ਤੇ ਜਾਂਦੀ ਆ ਤੇ ਉਹ ਸ਼ੇਅਰ ਹੁੰਦੀ ਆ ਇੰਡੀਆ ਦਾ ਉਹੀ ਮੈਸੇਜ ਪਾਉਂਦਾ ਪਰ ਗਰਾਊਂਡ ਦੀ ਇਹ ਰਿਐਲਿਟੀ ਨਹੀਂ ਹੈਗੀ ਕੋਈ ਨਹੀਂ ਕਿਸੇ ਨਾਲ ਭੇਦਭਾਵ ਨਹੀਂ ਕਰਦਾ ਐਕਸਪਲੋਇਟੇਸ਼ਨ ਜ਼ਰੂਰ ਕਿਤਨਾ
ਤੇ ਇੱਥੇ ਆ ਕੇ ਜਦੋਂ ਤੁਹਾਡੀ ਪੜ੍ਹਾਈ ਪੂਰੀ ਹੁੰਦੀ ਆ ਫਿਰ ਤੁਹਾਨੂੰ ਪੀਆਰ ਦੇ ਐਪਲੀਕੇਸ਼ਨ ਵਿੱਚ ਕਿੱਦਾਂ ਦੇ ਖਰਚੇ ਆਉਂਦੇ ਆ ਐਕਸਪਲੋਰੇਸ਼ਨ ਟੂ ਬਿਗਿਨ ਵਿਦ ਹੁਣ ਮੈਂ ਤੁਹਾਨੂੰ ਇੱਕ ਗੱਲ ਦੱਸਦਾ ਕਿ ਮੈਨੂੰ ਹੁਣੇ 2 ਮਹੀਨੇ ਪਹਿਲਾਂ ਹੀ ਪਤਾ ਲੱਗਾ ਹਨਾ ਮੇਰੇ ਨਾਲ ਦਾ ਵੀਰ ਸੀਗਾ ਮੇਰੇ ਨਾਲੇ ਪੜਿਆ ਹੁਣ ਇੱਥੇ ਆਇਆ ਤੇ ਉਹਦਾ ਪਹਿਲੀ ਵਾਰ ਰਿਫਿਊਜ਼ਲ ਆ ਗਈ ਸੀਗੀ ਤੇ ਦੂਸਰੀ ਵਾਰ ਉਹਨੇ ਕਿਸੇ ਏਜੰਟ ਦੇ ਨਾਲ ਜਿਹਦਾ ਆਪਾਂ ਕਹਿੰਦੇ ਨੇ ਠੇਕਾ ਕੀਤਾ 18 ਲੱਖ ਦੇ ਵਿੱਚ ਉਹ ਕਹਿੰਦਾ ਮੈਂ ਤੁਹਾਨੂੰ ਕੈਨੇਡਾ ਭੇਜ ਦਿੰਦਾ ਉਹ ਹੁਣ ਉੱਥੇ ਇੰਡੀਆ ਉਹਦੀ ਫੈਮਿਲੀ ਨੇ 18 ਲੱਖ ਭਰਿਆ ਤੇ ਹੁਣ ਇਸ ਵੇਲੇ ਕੈਨੇਡਾ ਵਿੱਚ ਤਾਂ ਪਹੁੰਚ ਗਿਆ ਪਰ ਇੱਥੇ ਆ ਕੇ ਉਹਨੂੰ ਪਤਾ ਲੱਗਾ ਹੁਣ ਜਿਹੜਾ ਉਹਦਾ ਕਾਲਜ ਆ ਉਹਨੂੰ ਵਰਕ ਫਰਮ ਨਹੀਂ ਮਿਲਣਾ ਹੁਣ ਉਹਨੂੰ ਕਾਲਜ ਚੇਂਜ ਕਰਨਾ ਪੈਣਾ ਮਤਲਬ ਉਹਨੂੰ ਦੁਬਾਰਾ ਸਾਰੀਆਂ ਫੀਸਾਂ ਭਰਨੀਆਂ ਪੈਣੀਆਂ ਜਿਹੜਾ ਉਹ ਏਜੰਟ 18 ਲੱਖ ਲੈ ਗਿਆ ਉਹ ਤਾਂ ਗਿਆ ਉਹ ਹੁਣ ਉਹਨੂੰ ਉਹਦਾ ਕੁਝ ਨਹੀਂ ਮਿਲਣਾ ਇਹ ਦਾ ਮਤਲਬ ਇਨੀ ਕਈਆਂ ਨੂੰ ਪਹਿਲੇ ਸਟੈਪ ਤੇ ਕਈਆਂ ਦੇ ਨਾਲ ਇਦਾਂ ਦੀ ਕਈਆਂ ਨੂੰ ਐਕਸਪਲੋਇਟ ਕੀਤਾ ਜਾਂਦਾ ਉਸ ਤੋਂ ਬਾਅਦ ਜਦੋਂ ਬੰਦਾ ਹੁਣ ਇੱਥੇ ਆ ਜਾਂਦਾ ਤੇ ਹੁਣ ਕਈ ਵਾਰ ਜਦੋਂ ਗੱਲਾਂ ਸੁਣੀਆਂ ਕਿ ਕਈ ਕੰਮ ਕਰਦੇ ਆ ਆਪਣੇ ਬੰਦਿਆਂ ਦੇ ਕੋਲ ਹਨਾ ਕੈਸ਼ ਦੇ ਉੱਤੇ ਕਰਦੇ ਆ ਤੇ ਉਹਨਾਂ ਦੇ ਪੈਸੇ ਮਾਰੇ ਜਾਂਦੇ ਆ ਪਰ ਉਹ ਕੁਝ ਨਹੀਂ ਕਰ ਸਕਦੇ ਕਿਉਂਕਿ ਉਹ ਐਟ ਦਾ ਫਰਸਟ ਪਲੇਸ ਉਹ ਆਪ ਇਲੀਗਲ ਕੰਮ ਕਰ ਰਹੇ ਆ ਉਹ ਤੇ ਜੇ ਕੋਈ ਐਦਾਂ ਪੈਸੇ ਬਹੁਤ ਕੇਸ ਹੁੰਦੇ ਐਦਾਂ ਦੇ ਖਾਸ ਤੌਰ ਤੇ ਰੈਸਟੋਰੈਂਟ ਦੇ ਵਿੱਚ ਉਹਨਾਂ ਦੇ ਪੈਸੇ ਮਾਰ ਮਾਰੇ ਜਾਂਦੇ ਆ ਪਰ ਦੁਆਰਾ ਮਿਲਦੇ ਨਹੀਂ ਤੇ ਉਹਨਾਂ ਦੀ ਨਾ ਤਾਂ ਉਹ ਆਪ ਆਵਾਜ਼ ਚੱਕਦੇ ਆ ਤੇ ਉਹ ਚੱਕ ਵੀ ਲੈਣ ਤਾਂ ਉਹਨਾਂ ਦੀ ਕੋਈ ਕੀ ਹੈਲਪ ਕਰ ਸਕਦਾ ਕਿਉਂਕਿ ਉਹ ਐਟ ਦਾ ਫਰਸਟ ਪਲੇਸ ਦੈਮਸੈਲਫ ਗਿਲਟੀ ਰਹੇ ਤੇ ਦੁਆਰਾ ਆਹ ਜੌਬਸ ਦਾ ਹੋ ਗਿਆ ਰਹਿਣ ਦਾ ਔਖਾ ਆ ਜਰੂਰ ਜਰੂਰ ਇਹ ਗੱਲ ਸੱਚੀ ਆ ਚਲੋ ਕਈ ਕਈ ਕੇਸਾਂ ਦੇ ਵਿੱਚ ਐਦਾਂ ਹੋਇਆ ਕਿ ਸਟੂਡੈਂਟਸ ਨੇ ਕੋਈ ਪ੍ਰੋਪਰਟੀ ਡੈਮੇਜ ਕੀਤੀ ਆ ਕਿਸੇ ਲੈਂਡਲੋਰਡ ਦੀ ਨੋ ਟੈਨੈਂਟ ਨੇ ਕੀਤੀ ਆ ਪਰ ਐਦਾਂ ਦੇ ਵੀ ਬਹੁਤ ਜ਼ਿਆਦਾ ਕੇਸ ਆ ਤੁਸੀਂ ਸ਼ਹਿਰਾਂ ਦੇ ਆਲੇ ਦੁਆਲੇ ਘਰਾਂ ਚ ਦੇਖੋਗੇ ਫਰਸਟ ਫਲੋਰ ਦੇ ਵਿੱਚ ਜਿਹੜਾ ਲਿਵਿੰਗ ਰੂਮ ਹੁੰਦਾ ਲੌਬੀ ਬਣੀ ਹੁੰਦੀ ਆ ਉਹਦੇ ਵੀ ਰੂਮਸ ਬਣਾਏ ਗਏ ਆ ਕਿ ਉਹ 500-500 ਡਾਲਰ ਉਹਨਾਂ ਤੋਂ ਲਿਆ ਜਾਂਦਾ ਉਹਨਾਂ ਉਹਨਾਂ ਉਹ ਉਹਨਾਂ ਏਰੀਆਆਂ ਦੇ ਵਿੱਚ ਰਹਿਣ ਨੂੰ ਹੁੰਦਾ ਮਤਲਬ ਐਦਾਂ ਦੀ ਐਕਸਪਲੋਇਟੇਸ਼ਨ ਵੀ ਹੁੰਦੀ ਆ ਤੇ ਮਤਲਬ ਹਰ ਪਾਸੇ ਐਕਸਪਲੋਇਟੇਸ਼ਨ ਤਾਂ ਹਰ ਪਾਸੇ ਆ ਤੇ ਹੁਣ ਲਾਸਟ ਇਅਰ ਇੱਕ ਹੋਰ 2 ਸਾਲ ਪਹਿਲਾਂ ਇੱਕ ਨਵੀਂ ਚੀਜ਼ ਚੱਲੀ ਆ ਸਟੂਡੈਂਟਸ ਨੂੰ ਫੋਨ ਕੀਤਾ ਜਾਂਦਾ ਕਿ ਅਸੀਂ ਸੀਆਰਏ ਵੱਲੋਂ ਜਾਂ ਅਸੀਂ ਬਾਰਡਰ ਫੋਰਸਸ ਵੱਲੋਂ ਬੋਲਦੇ ਆ ਤੁਹਾਨੂੰ ਰਿਪੋਰਟ ਕਰ ਦਿੱਤਾ ਜਾਣਾ ਮੈਂ ਤੁਹਾਡੀ ਹੈਲਪ ਕਰਨ ਲਈ ਫੋਨ ਕੀਤਾ ਤੁਸੀਂ ਛੇਤੀ ਛੇਤੀ ਇੰਨੇ 1000 ਡਾਲਰ ਵਾਲੇ ਅਕਾਊਂਟ ਚ ਪਾ ਦਿਓ ਤੇ ਮੈਂ ਤੁਹਾਨੂੰ ਬਚਾ ਸਕਦਾ ਮਤਲਬ ਇਦਾਂ ਨਹੀਂ ਹੁਣ ਜਿਹੜਾ ਬੰਦਾ ਇੱਥੇ ਇੱਕ ਸਟੂਡੈਂਟ ਪਰਮਿਟ ਸਟੱਡੀ ਪਰਮਿਟ ਤੇ ਆ ਜਾਂ ਫਿਰ ਵਰਕ ਪਰਮਿਟ ਤੇ ਆ ਉਹਨੂੰ ਤਾਂ ਡਰ ਹੁੰਦਾ ਕਿ ਮੈਂ ਹੁਣ ਇੰਨੇ 1000 ਡਾਲਰ ਇੰਨੇ ਲੱਖ ਰੁਪਏ ਤਾਂ ਲਾਇਆ ਆ ਆਲਰੇਡੀ ਤੇ ਹੁਣ ਇਤੋਂ ਬਚ ਜਾਈਏ ਤੇ ਬਹੁਤ ਜ਼ਿਆਦਾ ਇਦਾਂ ਦੇ ਕੇਸ ਆ ਕੇ ਉਹ ਗਿਫਟ ਕਾਰਡ ਲੈ ਕੇ ਉਹਨਾਂ ਨੂੰ ਦੇ ਦਿੰਦੇ ਆ ਤੇ ਉਹ ਬਾਅਦ ਚ ਦੁਆਰਾ ਟਰੈਕ ਵੀ ਨਹੀਂ ਹੁੰਦੇ ਮਤਲਬ ਇਦਾਂ ਨਹੀਂ ਐਕਸਪਲੋਇਟੇਸ਼ਨ ਹੈ ਇਹਦਾ ਲੈਕ ਆਫ ਅਵੇਅਰਨੈਸ ਆ ਇਹ ਪਰ ਯਾ ਪਰ ਹੁੰਦੀ ਤਾਂ ਹੈਗੀ ਆ ਇਹ ਸੋ ਥੇਰ ਇਜ਼ ਡੈਫੀਨਿਟਲੀ ਥਿੰਗਸ ਅਰਾਊਂਡ ਹਾਊਸਿੰਗ ਸੀਆਰਏ ਸਕੈਮਸ ਇਮੀਗ੍ਰੇਸ਼ਨ ਏਜੈਂਟਸ ਇਨਕਰੀਸ ਟਿਊਸ਼ਨ ਖਰਚਾ ਬਹੁਤ ਹੁੰਦਾ ਆ ਐਂਡ ਵਿੱਚ ਤੁਸੀਂ ਸਾਡੇ ਸੁਣਨ ਵਾਲਿਆਂ ਨੂੰ ਸਾਡੀ ਕਮਿਊਨਿਟੀ ਨੂੰ ਕੀ ਦੱਸਣਾ ਚਾਹੁੰਦੇ ਆ ਜੇ ਕੋਈ 
ਜਿਹੜੀ ਵੀ ਤੁਹਾਨੂੰ ਪਤਾ ਫਿਊਚਰ ਦੇ ਵਿੱਚ ਤੁਹਾਡੀ ਤੁਸੀਂ ਆਪਣੀ ਪ੍ਰੋਫੈਸ਼ਨਲ ਲਾਈਫ ਕੰਟੀਨਿਊ ਕਰ ਸਕਦੇ ਆ ਸਿਰਫ ਕੰਮ ਦੇ ਪੜ੍ਹਾਈ ਦੇ ਨਾਲ ਨਾਲ ਕੋਈ ਕੰਮ ਕਰਨ ਦੇ ਚੱਕਰਾਂ ਵਿੱਚ ਜਾਂ ਹੋਰਾਂ ਚੱਕਰਾਂ ਕਿ ਨਾ ਪੜਨ ਤੋਂ ਡਰਦੇ ਆਪਾਂ ਹਨਾ ਪੜਨ ਤੋਂ ਡਰਦੇ ਹੋਏ ਆਪਾਂ ਉਦਾਂ ਨੇ ਕਾਲਜ ਲੈ ਲੈਨੇ ਆ ਜਾਂ ਕਿਉਂਕਿ ਆਪਣਾ 2 ਸਾਲ ਵੀ ਤਾਂ ਲੱਗਣੇ ਲੱਗਣੇ ਆਪਣੇ ਆਪਣਾ ਪੈਸਾ ਵੀ ਲੱਗਣਾ ਲੱਗਣਾ ਪਰ ਇਹ ਵੀ ਮੈਨੂੰ ਲੱਗਦਾ ਆ ਜਿਹੜੀ ਐਕਸਪਲੋਇਟੇਸ਼ਨ ਇਹ ਤਾਂ ਆਪਣੀ ਆਪਣੇ ਬੰਦੇ ਆਪ ਹੀ ਕਰ ਰਹੇ ਆ ਇਹ ਪਰ ਹੁਣ ਨਹੀਂ ਪਰ ਆਉਣ ਵਾਲੇ ਸਾਲਾਂ ਦੇ ਵਿੱਚ ਪਤਾ ਲੱਗੂਗਾ ਕਿ ਆਪਣਾ ਆਪਾਂ ਕਿੱਥੇ ਖੜੇ thank you tada both that you keep sharing all of these things with us um if you are listening if you would like to follow the work that just we think does um are you guys on instagram uh-huh. yes sex_students_association uh, and on facebook it's international sex students association all right so make sure you follow them and the wonderful work that they do um if you are listening or you know anyone that needs support World Sex Organization provides uh anything that we can help with legal advocacy and if you know anyone in a social situation we encourage them to reach out to our sick family helpline and all of those resources you can find on our website as well thank you again Jasper Singh for coming in why guruji ka khalsa why guruji ki fateh so that concludes uh, asking in six the podcast uh for this month just record that was a good one It's been quite a month. Uh if you're a sick and a Canadian, you got a lot to take in. Yeah, this uh, 2020 again has been really bad so far. Um uh, you know, we say in Tartikala like you know, I'm not upset, uh, but uh, this has been a really like really rough start to the year. Uh, we didn't even get into the coronavirus like the racist coverage of the like, coronavirus oh, yeah. or like the racist so treatment bad. of like people of uh, Asian background. There's really great tweets out there about You know, I tried to the subway station I will kind of move out of the way I start turning the bell. Um we didn't even cover any of the coronavirus stuff. But the reality is this has been kind of a rough a rough go. Um but we're here to talk about it and we're here to keep an eye on it and provide a sick perspective. Now we thank you so much for listening. You can find the podcast on every single podcast platform, uh you know, from Apple to Google to Spotify to uh Anchor uh to SoundCloud. Uh, so please do subscribe uh, leave a review you know that's always nice uh, it goes uh, it goes a long way uh, but not, last but not least and we never really made this ask yet um, but this only happens with the support of volunteers and donations uh, and if you can find it in your heart uh, to donate to, to the world sick organization go to our website uh, worldsick.org uh, everything is there Uh, but your support goes a long way in making stuff like this um accessible um it makes it happen uh without your support we can't continue this uh and a lot of this is volunteer driven almost all of it is uh, so if you, if you need those, reasons i know we didn't do the legal update this month uh but yeah. if you tuned into other podcasts bopreasing does a legal update that one man alone is an institution and worth supporting financially and the legal update for this month was uh we we skipped it because it was people are still racist bopper singh is still writing them strongly worded letters they are still apologizing and falling at his feet so all yes. of the hidden work that he does a, a little kid in surrey who wasn't allowed to wear a kara at a sports game and now is all of that incredible work if you believe in it please please support oh yeah and also fighting bill 21 and pushing a lot of these city councils to pass motions and other governments and putting pressure on Quebec like all this stuff is is it does cost money uh, as uh, as odd as that sounds uh, so your donations go a long way and and we are thankful for everyone who has donated we really can't do this without the support of the community 
Uh, so with that, thank you again for listening to Ask Me Six podcast. We'll see you uh, next month. Wahiguru ji ka khalsa. Wahiguru ji ka peh.